this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 13, our preview of the upcoming Innovations in Nathalie Care Conference in Barcelona. And from the vault, we have conversation 24.4 from season three, the last part of our wrap-up episode from the inaugural INCBCN conference last May. It's interesting to review what Jeff Lazarus and Jorn Schottenberg anticipated then as compared to what we discussed in previewing this year's conference. This conversation cuts from last year's wrap-up for the inaugural INCBCN conference. The Surfing Nash co-hosts start with comments about pharma partners and patient advocates' favorable reactions to the meeting and go on to review many of the individual presentations. Louise Campbell shifts the focus of the conversation to the role of liver and overall metabolic wellness. Jorn Schottenberg notes that hepatologists are less likely to focus on liver fat than fibrosis and agrees that a broader focus on liver fat is important to the overall issue of metabolic health. In the end, I asked the group to consider and describe actions that might strengthen a successful 2022 conference when it recurs in 2023. Listen to the answers knowing what you've just heard about what we anticipate we'll be doing next month. The inaugural INCBCN conference was a truly innovative meeting concept that produced fantastic discussions, lessons, and insights. These conversations can tell you what to anticipate this year, so just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Jaren Schottenberg. One of the surprising feedbacks was maybe uh, coming from the pharma partners. They said, you know, this is better than any ad board we've ever done because we get all the different opinions and uh, point of views. So I think really the diversity of the opinion, it wasn't it wasn't a mainstreamly aligned. Like if you get all hepatologists, they tend to say similar things. And I think really the diversity of the mix here is this what uh, struck me. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a second dynamic there. You're having observed ad boards from the, from the pharmacy industry side for years. It always feels like people are to some degree singing for their supper. They know what their clients want to see covered and the perspectives in which they wanted to see it covered. And it has an influence, subtle or not so subtle, on what people talk about and how they talk. When you put multiple stakeholders with vastly different perspectives in the room and everybody is there because they want to be, that dynamic completely changes because now you need to respond to everybody else you're talking with. And there, there is no financial primacy behind any of it. So you get a much broader and more open set of discussions. And I understand why the farm people said that. That makes complete sense to me. I, I learn more here than I, than I have in virtually anything else we've done. Louise Campbell. Well, Jose Villanese, I think you pronounce her name, but I apologise to her if that is not. The Dutch Liver Patients Association. She was very key. People want to give you something that they think will work, but don't ask the patient what they need. And I think that was her phrase. She said it a lot of times. Don't give us what you think we want. Ask us what we need. So for anybody who hasn't seen or got caught up or didn't attend the conference, those key words are really, really important. Give them a cream that manages scars. They don't want that. They wanted a cream that stopped them itching in the first place. So actually check out what they need because you might be investing an awful lot of money in something that floats your boat but doesn't actually address the patient need. So I think she was absolutely key in that. For any ad board, you need to look at what they need, not what they, what you think they want. Excellent. To, to me, that thought replaces nothing about us without us, right? Because it goes one past that. You can, you can have us in the room, but you have to, what are you focusing on? I, I couldn't agree more. I, I thought she was maybe the single most com- surprisingly compelling person in the meeting to me. I thought she was fantastic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And she walked everywhere. Even better. She was getting her clock in her steps up. <laughs> So you were was there a specific presentation that, that gave you information that found you found surprising or you hadn't known or even was in conflict with things you thought you did know? Well, I think each 
presentation was unique. I'm reflecting on some, let's say, of the hepatologists where I would think that I knew most of the data. Alina Allen did a nice job because she highlighted some of the pitfalls of using, let's say, FibroScan in the general population, discuss the negative and the positive predictive values. And if I pair that with the information, again, the, that came from uh, Jean Mouris and the primary care docs, they said, you know, we need we need these tools and, and they have to be based on our needs. Which patients do we really to have to refer on? I thought that was unique. Marcus Rennie had a lasting experience because it was a very personal talk. You know, he included these personal experiences. He called it N equals two, but it was a nice way to pick the data. Zubair did a great job. I think I've seen that data before, but it's always nice to see him presented. He has so much of a presence, so well-renowned. And even Stephen, who's not with us here tonight, but over the internet, did a marvelous job. And I like you know, he maybe you remember, but he showed the same MOAs or substances in two different ways, dissecting them and, and who is in phase two, who is in phase three, and then looking at it from the perspective, what's oral, what's subcutaneous. That's a refreshing uh, way instead of detailing all the phase two or preliminary data and, and, and saying, you know, this it, because it's so relevant to the core of the innovations in NAFLD workshop, where we want to say we want to implement something and what could be more relevant than how the application is going to be, sub-Q or or oral, and it will be different for different patients. Even within the data sets that I might have known, I thought the unique perspective of the speakers, which were all fabulous, brought in so much more. Um, it, it broadened the way you look at it. You know, I couldn't agree more. I, I had that reaction listening to Alina and, and then listening to Steve, and I saw that reaction to the meaningful degree listening to Ken, which was the first talk in that round of three. Uh, but I, I think you're right. When you broaden the audience, shorten the time for the talk, and define the focus differently, if you're dealing with people who take it seriously in all three those people take everything they do seriously. What you'll get is what you got, which is the focus will change to reflect the question, the audience, and the time frame. And you start distilling down to what really matters. Yeah, and I think it was interesting. I obviously raised the question with Alina on the data with FibroScan Fib4 and Nafil Fibrosis score that if you only use FibroScan for kilopascals, you only pick up the stiffness. And I think Lauren Sanderin, who was there, was actually quite clear. FibroScan picks up stiffness. It's medical world that define that that stiffness correlates to fibrosis. Echo said and FibroScan do not define fibrosis, they define stiffness. But also, we don't look at a systolic blood pressure and give that alone. We need a diastolic. Now we have so much more with CAP. So poor liver health may just be high liver fat because we know it's not benign, irrespective of stiffness. So when we're looking at these, we really now need to also, A, if you want to split it to just kilopascals and stiffness, that's NASH. That's def definition and moving people out. You can argue that. But if you want to look for fat in the liver and fatty liver, where you can put an incentive to somebody and look at their other risk factors, then you don't need kilopascals. You just need CAP. But to actually separate them out now, when we certainly had CAP, for since 2014, I believe, we should be seeing this data in all studies and how relevant or irrelevant it is. Um, because I think you now can't have them both separate. And I, I do understand why, but I think we've now got to take the whole of the sum. And, and here comes the next thing that was unique. You know, when, when you normally discuss this with um, hepatologists, yes, the presence of fat, yes or no answer is relevant to make the diagnosis of NAFLD. But fat or CAP hasn't been linked to outcome and it's typically not something that's 
that's used by the regulators to define that this is a treatment-relevant disease. If you look at it from the way that Louise has repeatedly stressed, it's not about disease, it's about liver health. CAP is all of a sudden the single most important factor because it predicts how much, how likely you are to develop diabetes, at least hepatic steatosis does, and develop subsequent complications. So as an individual, you might want to know that. As a regulator, you might not care because that's not what you're going to approve a drug on or as a pharma company because you're not going to choose that population to be included in a study. Now, that's not totally true because the FAST score includes CAP and E and AST and, and, it, and it considers fibrosing NASH, but that's a surrogate. So I think the CAP is crucial to inform about liver health. And this is something that is so important to patients. And sometimes we focus too much on identifying the advanced cases that we could enroll in trials or that are relevant for the drug approval. So you aren't, that makes tremendous sense. And the logical follow-on to that is the CAP becomes a lot more important, FAP becomes a lot more important in primary care, right? Because there, in fact, we are focusing more on how you don't get from early signs of liver problems out to both the metabolic issues and to an increasingly worsening liver health. Yeah, I would say it becomes important in prevention. And Exactly. Thank you. Much better put than I did. But that is what pulls me to primary care, which is that within medicine, that will be the locus of prevention. Well, that in nursing. But 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 basically, before you get out, the hepatology specialist is where that's going to happen. And I, and I know prevention is hard to quantify when we do cost effectiveness. It's actually important. If you if you just said, what detects more liver disease? Is it liver stiffness by fibre scan or MRI or any of these other non-invasive? Or is it a blood test? Because a blood test isn't going to tell us one way or the other. If you then say which one for the cost per each individual detected, who we missed or we didn't miss, then it's a different argument. And particularly if we put it into CAP as well as kilopascals, then that is a totally different cost effectiveness argument on locating people in pre-diabetes conditions or cardiovascular. So, and I don't think any of that analysis has been done, but it restricts it currently. I don't know if that was salt or pepper, but one of Louise's cats was violently agreeing with her last statement, if you could hear it in the background. Um, so Louise, was that salt or pepper who was agreeing? That was... Pepper wanting to get into the room next door. She's, they've not had enough affection. I've been away out in Barcelona. <laughs> So we're, we're at an hour, including Jeff, and I've got other tape to integrate here. So I think we, we should just about wrap up. So we've said that what we might like to see next year are nurses, maybe payers. You're in anything else you're envisioning, and you certainly, we, we get opinions. You, you get you get one of the votes that matters. Anything you're envisioning for next year already besides, you can't top the changing the shirts at the end of the meeting. So I don't know what, you, what y'all are going to come up with for that. But Jeff's a pretty creative guy. I'm sure I'll get something. Don't other, put that out there that, because they will. The challenge is on. And we'll, we'll, you know, we'll give our best. You know, we left the meeting with the feeling, wow, we'll have to think of something that exceeds that next year. And that's not going to be so easy. Again, there's um, a lot of feedback that came through and said this was really an exceptional uh, meeting. And we're very happy about that. So we're really looking forward to it. This and um, really to break down the time until May 2023, there will be this um, halfway online workshop to also start discussing or continue the discussion of some of these. And I'm hoping we're producing a conference proceedings uh, summary here with us so that we can actually put some of these thoughts and ideas we had into the uh, scientific and academic discussion. So that's something that's hopefully forthcoming. I agree that payers could be a good perspective. It's not easy because we're talking about different systems. Uh, so it might be a, a high level um, approach of a payer, you know, maybe somebody who could discuss a little bit about the value of prevention, as Louis mentioned, versus how much reimbursement is relevant. We haven't had a regulator, so either EMA or FDA. Uh, this is 
something that could be interesting moving forward. On the other hand, they're not so intrinsically crucial to this because we really want to, you know, with the imp implementing of care, we want to implement the care. That means if a drug is approved, we'll use it. It's not so much about how does the drug get to the market or gets approved. We'd, we'd rather start after it's approved and then implement it into the, into the clinical field, I guess, as we discussed with lifestyle. And maybe that's a point that we can, you know, we have, I think the idea that Luis, Luis brought up is we need a, a nurse that supports lifestyle changes or maybe like a patient, maybe bring in one of the patient advocate. Donna Cryer mentioned this. I think she called it partner or um, guide or something, somebody who's next to a patient and tells about his journey that most likely in a different or more severe end-stage liver disease uh, situation accompanied the, the patient and, and hear on their perspective. All interesting. All very, and, and I think all helpful. I agree with you, by the way, that regulators might be the least interesting people of all, since this is not fundamentally a drug meeting. The person who wasn't there, and it's funny, Jeff and I were WhatsApping a little bit this morning, and this, he sent me, one of the things he was presenting today to the meeting was the 2019 epidemiology paper. And as I was looking at it, I realized if I wanted to pick one person I would have loved to have seen in that meeting who wasn't there, someone we've had on podcast, actually, is Chris Estes, to come in and actually talk about the pathways that the disease is taking on a country-by-country -country basis in major markets. It would have been the natural adjunct to what Zobear did. And, you know, the, the depth of Chris's data and his ability to pull stuff together really on the fly, as I've witnessed because we've asked him questions he was not prepared for when he got on the podcast and he, he never misses a beat. I thought that's an individual or a perspective that might have been a real addition. And I think the interesting thing, if you combine that with what Sean was talking about there with people who've got a vested interest and I'd like to see some of the big insurance companies, because I think it was Alina Allen that showed the data of cost per patient with NAFLD and ask the insurance companies, how they can just hose money and not go for detection and just still rely on a bump test. So the big ones that go globally, Booper, you've got some big ones in the US that go around, Vitality Health. There's international ones that work in every area of the world. So I've seen an article recently that estimated the spend in America by 2025 is going to be $1 trillion a year. The spend in Europe is going to be $334 billion a year. And yet we have insurance companies still not covering their patients, still not looking for anything other than the type 2 diabetes cardiovascular. I'd I don't understand that you can hose that amount of money and not even be looking to prevent it. Maybe it's just me. So brief digression about health economics and why insurers work that way. In the States, at least, they turn over a third of their patients every three years. And therefore, it's become kind of the opposite of the prisoner's dilemma, which is your attitude becomes, if I'm going to lose the patient, I don't care what happens in year five. Whereas, in fact, if everybody decided they cared about what happened in year five, they're all flipping these patients back and forth. They would all save money. But in the short run, nobody steps up to do that. So here you need the healthcare systems to step in and say we got to need a, a incentive for companies to provide that even if they change because as a system you know as a whole and I think maybe that's more feasible in a European way where it's more socialized the spendings uh, this could be better so you're maybe the session you need then is the advocates almost what we did last week but with more people right coming in and talking about oh and by the way that might solve another issue which is if you want a fascinating closing session for next year thinking about Achim Kautz drug coming in on a unicycle doing something juggling balls shooting t-shirts out at the audience I mean he's a talented guy who'll come up with something, but I would think Achim would be a consultant you'd get for your closing episode for season two. Yes, or you put the pay the insurance companies about your year five in the same room with some boxing gloves as the patients, and then see who comes out on top. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> 
I love that. But insurance companies want people to live longer to pay longer premiums. If we get to the nuts and bolts of it, and I know they pay out, but the longer you live, the more insurance premium you pay, and the healthier you are, which costs, which saves them money and care. So let's when you bring it down to their, they don't want to pay as much on health. They want to have you live longer to pay more insurance premiums. So by targeting metabolic health and liver disease, they can get a real win here. But I'll provide the towel when they when they throw it into the ring to give up. <laughs> that that that's great. And um, and Jeff in whatever garb he chooses, and Yorn will walk around with the cards between rounds, saying card round two, round three, round four. I don't see myself in that position yet, but uh, we'll see. We'll come up with something. It'll be worth the trip. Well, this was worth the trip. I have to. I have to. Uh, I had real high expectations for this meeting, and and you folks just smashed them. Uh, better better than I. I thought this was going to be big. I, uh, really interesting. It was bigger than I thought. I wound up leaving my, my test on stuff like this. Is do I leave thinking about things? I didn't realize I'd be thinking about. And that three-part vision of, of the specialist, the generalist, and then the empowered uh, data patient, without even thinking about the typical patient advocate role, kind of what Jose was talking about. The interplay of those groups and asking, well, what does that mean going forward was a bigger question than I thought I'd be thinking about. My hat's off to you. I thought it was great. Thanks. And again, it was an entire team effort and uh, and mostly the speakers gave, giving these fabulous presentations. We will be in Barcelona at the end of next May, and maybe Louise will even have an official role next time. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of Gobby, who just gets steps in at the last moment with <laughs> somebody who's not no, there. No, 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 no. All, all, all it means is that you'll come down to breakfast dressed the way you're supposed to be for the meeting instead of having to run back up at 10 of 9. Other than that, it would be the same thing. Quite possibly. But it was funny yesterday, just to sum up when you were talking about next year, I stayed in Barcelona because I've decided that if I'm going to go to a meeting, my life is about enjoying part of it rather than just trying to catch my tail. But they had the marathon or the fun run on. So everybody was running. And then they had they had this huge group of drummers. Now I know who you can use for next year's conference because they were amazing. They just drummed and drummed and everybody just partied. But it was a fitness day in Barcelona yesterday, along with my 22,000 steps. But there you go. You've got a dr drum on call. Excellent. So I will be back with the business section in a couple of minutes. And thanks to both of you. And, and congratulations, Jorn, to you and to Jeff and to everybody who helped put this meeting together. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, we may post our episode on Thursday to accommodate Jorn Schottenberg's schedule, returning from two major events in California in the presence of a uh, strike in Germany. We've not locked down the topic yet, but the two we are considering are both quite important. Until then, stay safe, surf on. See you next week on the podcast. Bye-bye now.